Talking Heads, Burning Down the House on Island 106.9 WIISQ West. Good morning. Gwen Filosa in with you for It's Too Early. That's the name of the show. Broadcasting right off Duval Street here at the big studio. And thank you for joining me today. Me today. Going to bring up my guest. She is an author. Her books include Near Canaan, The Possible World, and her latest, What Could Be Saved. Lisa O'Halloran-Schwartz, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you're calling from Chapel Hill? I am. Excellent. Thanks for taking Chapel Hill, North Carolina. North Carolina. And um, uh, we have so much to talk about. Your novel, What Could Be Saved, that came out earlier this year, uh, it's about expats, and you have a lot of experience with that. I do, to some extent. I, I can't claim to have spent my entire life expatriate, but my soul is expatriate, I think. Mm. Um the book itself is about, it's all fiction, but as I tell people, the setting is real. People want to ask me how much of it is real. And I, what I say is, it's like, a, it's like a theater. The theater structure is real and sound, but the play is all made up, you know? And so the, a different play was there when I was living there. Um, and this is just a made-up story, but the setting should feel real. And the book itself is a its a novel about an expatriate American family whose eight-year-old son goes missing in Bangkok in 1972 and who is contacted um, decades later uh, by a man who claims to be the vanished boy. And, you know, what happened in 1972, what happened after the boy went missing, and eventually you do find out if it is the brother or son, you know, Philip, if it is the vanished boy. And you also find out what happened to Philip on that day in 1972. And I hope it's a good read. I mean, that's my whole purpose. Well, it's getting amazing reviews, Publishers Weekly, New York Post. Um, Crime Reads calls it a psychological thriller. Oh, I love that. It, it, there is um, mystery going on. There, well, there definitely is. There's there's a question that that pulls you. It's two couple questions that pull you through, and of course, one I hope the reader pulls the reader through, and one of them, of course, is what happened to Philip, and um, you know, someone in a book club yelled at me, "Why did you take so long to tell us?" And I thought, well, that's that's kind of the suspense. And by the time you hear what has hap- what happened to Philip, it's not the whole book, but you understand the family it i think psychological the psychological descriptor probably comes from the fact that you get to know the characters very well and they're complicated and they're all deeply affected by the loss of the child of course and each of them is affected in a different way so yeah and uh, tell us about your background because you you do have an overseas um childhood a little bit i was born over i was born in africa um, and uh, we spent uh, like a, about a year in Pittsburgh before between Africa and then Bangkok, and then came back eventually to Washington, D.C. So uh, I did grow up kind of thinking that the world is a big place, which I think I'm very grateful to my parents mm. for that, because, um, you know, I, while I lack a feeling, a true feeling of hometown, although I feel very possessive about DC, and in some senses also Pittsburgh, because it was my first American experience. Um, I don't have that feeling that people have where they 
grew up in this place and they saw it change and evolve over the decades. We really did move around um, a lot, but I just think it's a really great thing to look at the the globe, you know, of the world, the map of the world, and not see only one portion as the center of it. So, yeah. What brought your family overseas? What did, what did your parents do? Um, my dad worked for a company uh, called American Institutes for Research, and they they still exist. They do research into the behavioral, human and behavioral sciences. And uh, I never really knew what we were doing in Bangkok until many years later. My parents died when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I asked a colleague of my father's, you know, what were we doing in Bangkok? And oddly enough, I'd already started roughing out this this novel. Oddly enough, my father was apparently involved in some of the uh, intelligence work mm. uh, surrounding the Vietnam War. I had no idea uh, of that. But the, 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 the husband, the father in this book is in that community. And I... I thought I made that all up. So. Wow, that must have been like super cool, though, to find out. <laughs> um, it was in a way, although I'm not sure how much I sympathize mm. with um, uh, with the efforts Correct. in the Vietnam War. Personally, I think the book makes a lot of statements or or tries to just show things without judgment and lets the reader comes to the, come to his or her own decision about you know the appropriateness of all of it. Yeah, def definitely. Now, you, um, after growing up in Washington, you attended Harvard and then medical school at the University of Virginia. And while in medical school, you won an award for short fiction. I want to repeat that. While in medical school, you were also writing and winning awards. Right. How did you balance all that? Yeah, that was, it sounds so much more impressive than it is, actually. Um, but thank you for... Uh, no, it's for big. That It's, it's... um. Well, you know, most I started writing fiction for the first time in the first year of medical school, which is at that time, it was almost all in the classroom. There was no, not really any strong clinical aspect to it. And when the clinical work started in my third year of medical school, that was pretty much it for writing for a while, because it was just so important to learn and uh, pay full attention. It, it, the, the stakes were just too high. So um, I, yeah, I won that award. It was uh, completely unexpected. Um, it, it's for MFA students, but uh, the director of the MFA program at UVA s sort of said, he said, don't put medical school on this at all. Mm -hmm. And just don't, don't mention that you're in medical school and submit your stories. So I only had about three stories then. So I submitted those three stories. And I was so shocked when I won. I think everyone was shocked, which was, you know, it was just, it felt like someone saying, yes, you should be doing this. You have this feeling that you should be doing this. And it was, it's very rewarding. Um, but I did have to pay attention to medicine. I decided to continue with medicine because I just started writing fiction. I wrote poetry before that. And I wasn't really ready to tell a story I didn't think. I wrote a novel in medical school, but it was, to me, it was very much experimental trying to figure out how to tell a story. And I, I really did need some time to to read and, and live and think about what I wanted to say with writing. So I practiced medicine in the in the meantime. That's, that's very impressive. take a lot of my attention. Yes, yeah. that's, and, and you specialized in emergency medicine? Yeah, initially I did neurology because I really enjoyed the method of neurology, but 
the practice of neurology didn't appeal to me because it's, you know, usually in an office. And I, I like the emergency department, which is uh, very um, rapid. It's diagnostics at a rapid pace, mm. both of which really suit me. And uh, I just think it's my skill set really, it really dovetails nicely with that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was also really very good to be able to go to work. And, and when you leave work, you don't leave it completely. It stays in your head, mm. but you can sort of stop being a doctor when you're actually not there. And I like that idea. And I thought that I was going to be balancing both and writing. And I did write after I finished training. I did start to write at the same time I was practicing and it was lovely, but it was hard to balance. Mm. And eventually I realized that every time there was any kind of a conflict uh, medicine would have to win. The stakes were absolutely too high. Um, it was rather like being in an elite sport, I think. I don't know. I'm not a sporty, sporty person, but um, just everything was surrounded being adequately, you know, rested and hydrated for my shifts so that I could bring the best, my best self to my patients. And I realized I, eventually that I wanted to give my best self to writing. And so I, I, I eventually left medicine, which was hard to do. Yeah, I, I bet. No, it's a great analogy. Um, back to the book, What Could Be Saved. There are. It's about a family. There, it starts out uh, in 1972 in Bangkok, and uh, like you said, the Vietnam War is is going on. And, and the family, though, is kind of unaffected by all of that. And um, I was wondering um, how. What do you mean by that unaffected? What are they? They not paying attention, or are they simply in their own world? Absolutely. I think I, part of that is based on my real, my real experience when I was there. I was about the child Philip's age when I was there. And um, the, one of the, the child who was missing, I was about his age uh, when we were there. And I did not understand that there was a Vietnam War until we got home to America. I literally had no idea. And it just people when I got home, people told me things like they saw things on the television. We didn't have a lot of television, so I was shocked to hear that Americans had really actually seen the war, and I had seen none of it. So it was possible to survive in a bubble. There's also a lot of a bubble going on in this family. They're they're in a bubble of American culture, you know, before the, the real revolution in 1968, where the social, the cultural revolution, in, you know, in America was just profound in that year. 68 to 69, and they they left before then and went to Bangkok. And so they preserved this very traditional American family and culture in their little bubble. And so coming home to them was a was a giant culture shock, which was probably muffled by the, the fact that they lost the child. So that really wasn't a major point. But the idea was they did live in a bubble. And I think a lot of people live in bubbles mm -hmm. of different, you know, now in in a different way uh, so i thought that was very germane to yeah, my experience definitely now in writing what could be saved did you know it was going to be kind of a thriller or did it just happen while you were writing it or did you have it all mapped out you know i don't have any idea what the book is going to be i'm very inefficient when i write but i i think of what is interesting to me and then I have to um, think of what might be interesting to a reader. And so this book, I really 
worked on this book for a long time with many false starts where I couldn't find the thread that would be interesting to a reader. And then when I suddenly realized all of a sudden, literally just a couple of years ago, when I started the final draft or the, the first final draft of this book, um, with, with, if the young boy went missing, you know, that's just a, a profound event. Mm -hmm. And that crystallized the entire story. It, 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 I could see the immediately the entire story. And I didn't know exactly what would happen, but about while I was working on the book, about a quarter of the way through, I knew how it want, I wanted it to end. And so I wrote toward that ending. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I think every book is a thriller and every book is a mm. romance, uh, you know, either or. I think every book is, has some element of suspense that draws you through. And I, I love a book that has, I'm very focused on the language. There's the poet in me still alive and well, but I love a book that has a mystery to it, a ro even a romance element to it. I think literary fiction, a lot of times, is just a dressed up romance or mystery. I like it. I and, like it. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I try not to ask writers is, what are you working on now? But you, you, you do have a, a, a book that you're working on. Oh, yes. I'm, yes. And working on a book includes staring out the window and walking my dog. So, <laughs> um, but I think it went, I was actually pretty well through it or into it by the time the pandemic hit while I was revising the, uh, you know, this book. And um, it got derailed a little bit by the pandemic because this, the, the new book is, I wanted to be set after, you know, in the near future. And before the pandemic, the near future didn't include a pandemic in the past. So I had to sit with it for a while and think about how, you know, I, for a while I couldn't even envision a future past the pandemic. It just felt very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now I've kind of come to a place where I've, made some decisions about how far after the pandemic and in what ways the shadow of the pandemic will fall across my story. Cause I don't want it to be a pandemic story. Mm -hmm. um, but I want it to be informed by this major event. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, but it has had to be moved onto a different track. Well, Lisa O'Halloran Schwartz, thank you so much for taking some time today. And the book, again, is What Could Be Saved. And I wish you continued success. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Great. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you all for tuning in today to It's Too Early. I'm here weekdays at 8.15.